Hi, and welcome to Journeys to Belonging podcast with host Dr. Eileen Winokur, featuring awesome educators and leaders who share their journeys, advice, and personal stories about feeling a sense of belonging. and welcome to another episode of Journeys to Belonging. Today I have someone on my podcast that I've only known for probably six months to a year. I didn't know it was her because her handle is different from her name on Twitter, but uh, Tia Luker Putra um, and I know each other from Twitter. And then recently we were going to be on a Same Here Beluga series um, mental health month uh, webinar about being part of a PLN, but uh, she lives internationally. And as we know, for those of us who live internationally, getting time zones correct is sometimes difficult. And so I said, well, if you want to talk about the importance of PLNs, please be a guest on my podcast. And so Tia, I'm so excited that you said yes. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's so nice to connect and chat. So I didn't really say anything much about you other than how we met. So tell our listeners uh, more about you because there's so much to your story. Um, I am a teacher living in Shanghai, China, and I've been here for seven years. I've been teaching for almost 15 years. And um, I've had quite a transformation during my teaching. I went from teaching high school French to elementary science. And then that started my foray into kind of STEM and SDGs and diversity. Um, so yeah, so I, that's kind of like in a nutshell. Um, I do lots of different things with curriculum writing and um, I, I definitely, Twitter has helped kind of amplify a lot of the stuff that I've done. Um, I built my own website, which has been really exciting. Awesome. This is also ed.com. So that's been really cool. And yeah, so that's, I guess, a nutshell. <laughs> well, that's a good synopsis. We'll get into more of, of each part of that probably as we, as I ask my questions. But my very first question I always ask my guests is if I say the word belonging or feeling a sense of belonging, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I think um, that it becomes the people you associate with, you know, the people that you um, build around you. Because as a teacher who lives overseas, you have to build your own family, you have to build your own support network. You have to really um, carve out a space where you belong because you're in a place that you actually don't really belong in. Um, I'm in a cultural right of the language. Um, you know, I don't have to share the same cultural values. And so it, it's definitely belonging becomes a really big issue, both emotionally and um, mentally, just because you're trying to find that place where you do belong, because that is so important. So when I think of belonging, I always think of the people that I've built that sense of belonging with. Mm -hmm. And that's perfect, because it leads into my first question, which just happens to be, you have done a lot of traveling because you're originally from Canada and I think you lived in South Korea and taught there also. Um, now you're in China, as you said, but, um, and you talked about that sense of belonging by putting those people around you. So in each of those places, how have you been able to do that? Because I know for some people who travel overseas for work, whether it's for teaching or it's, 
it's very difficult for them to find that sense of belonging. And so they always feel sort of like they, they, they don't, not that they don't fit in, but that they're not comfortable with their environment. They might love their job, but they're just not really happy. So how have yeah. you made that work? Uh, I think as a military kid, that, uh, that kind of moving and, and creating new communities comes really naturally because you have to as a, as a military family. Yeah. And so I always blame my family when I am, they say, you know, you're overseas, you're too far. I'm like, this is your fault. You move me around a lot. <laughs> okay. I like doing that. You know, I like living in new places. Yeah. Um, but I think every time we move to a new place, because in Korea, you know, you kind of came in with the same kind of cohort of people and you met a lot of foreigners and the foreign community was um, a really nice group of people that you kind of created with your own school and things like that. And then that, I met my wife there and her and I decided to go back to Canada to see if our relationship would work in, you know, real life because life overseas can become very easy in the sense of, you know, you don't have a lot of problems to deal with. And, you know, so there's, it's, there's not the same like family pressures and things like that. And so we went home and that actually there, we found a really hard time um, with the sense of belonging because we were living in a community that we'd never lived in before. We found it very hard to meet other people um, and in British Columbia and found it really, really difficult. Um, my school was really great and the people were really great, but of course they kind of, at the end of the day went off and did their own things as people kind of do when you live sure. in North America. So that one was really tough and there was a lot of strikes that year and the whole province was mm. up in up in arms with the with the strikes so we were like this is this is not fun let's go so we decided to move <laughs> this to is China. too much of real life <laughs> yeah it was too much real life, definitely definitely I mean, we had you know boxes with fabric over it for our tables and chairs and things like that so we were like well, let's move and so we came out to China and in China, the, the foreign community here is amazing. It's vibrant. It doesn't matter what part of, of your life you're in, you can find a community that belongs to you. Mm -hmm. So here in China, uh, once we moved, we lived in a little tiny village of a million people. That's what they call it, a village. Right. And um, that was really small. There was like eight of us that hung out together for a year. And then we moved to Shanghai where we met a lot of the people that we know still. Um, and built our kind of community, our family here. And so, you know, this is the, the family we do trips with and we do holidays and celebrations and all of those things with, you know, we have baby showers and all that stuff. It's all friends. It's not mm -hmm. the typical family you would have back home. It's friends that do all those things, but that's what you kind of, uh, that's how you, you get that together. Yeah, do you find that it's, it's easier to find like-minded people or, people who yeah. are interested in the same types of activities or, you know, things that you would do outside of the realm of work. Um, yeah. Are they, I yeah, think, rather than I colleagues. Think, I mean, I think you fall into the colleagues thing. Like the, the lines are blurred in, when mm -hmm. you're overseas because the people you hang out with are usually the people you work with. Mm -hmm. um, I've been to a few different schools, so I've managed to kind of have a group of people that are now from all different schools which is really nice and introduced mm -hmm. from other people so at least when we get together 
um, you don't just talk about school the whole time because that's what I was going to ask you about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but now that we work at different schools, my wife and I work at a different school now. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we come home, we download all the stuff from the day, but you know, and then we, we have, you know, other things that we do and talk about and stuff like that. So sure, it is easier to, um, kind of separate, you know, because there's clubs you can join and there's all kinds of different things, sports and, and things like that, that allow you to kind of have a different life besides just school. Cause otherwise it can become very overwhelming. <laughs> It does. And, and it's also, you know, if you want to have that work-life balance, that's mm. part of it is realizing that you do need to turn that part of you off for a bit and have discussions or do activities that are not related to, even if they're your colleagues or former colleagues or whatever, but that tendency to, to find that common thread through work is, is really, you need to, yeah. So I, I, you know, I applaud you and your wife for being able to find people and then make that effort to do other activities. And even with your wife, not to have that constant discussion about work, because that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have to be mindful about it. You really need to be conscious about making that decision. So that's probably why one of the reasons why you're more successful at finding that group, because you're able to figure out where that separation is and not not everybody is it's it's sort of a journey you have to go on so and um, you know I, yeah. I feel like right now we're going through a bit of a transition and we're mm-hmm. like trying new things like we've joined a soccer team and I've started <laughs> I feel so silly when I say this out loud I've started um sewing dog bandanas <laughs> oh that's and- so cute because I have I have a small Yorkie and um for his birthday I made bandanas for all the little dogs that came Mm -hmm. and then I thought you know I could sew these and sell Mm -hmm. them and donate the money for charity so I Mm -hmm. I started doing that and I did my first market a few weeks ago and we've been meeting new people through that and so it's been really cool to meet other like like minded with you know having dogs and things like that Mm -hmm. so it's been really cool yeah, I have grand doggies. My kids all have at least one dog. <laughs> so so I totally understand the dog thing. Yes. Yeah, so it for me it's not so silly. <laughs> it's just so funny. But I mean I love yeah. it because I call them do good bandanas. Uh, and uh, as a shout out to my sorority. And mm-hmm. uh, we yeah, and I just I just sell them and it's just fun for me to see these little dogs running around and all the money goes to charity and helps uh dogs in need in the city so it's really nice and it's a way for you to take yourself away from your work for a while take yourself away from your computer so yeah so that's a really good idea also um i one of the things i mentioned in introducing you was that we really have this common interest of being far away uh, overseas and having our PLN. And that's, mm-hmm. I know it's something that it's really dear to you. So can you talk a little bit more about the importance of your PLN, how you got started, how long you've been, um, and just wh- why, why, you know, why is it important to you? Geez. So I guess it started because I spoke at a conference it was two years ago. I just had my two-year Twitterversary. I got a little notification. I, was, I didn't know that was a thing. Um, and I was talking to some of the speakers about how they were traveling and speaking and doing all of this stuff. And I was like, how do you do that? And they said, you got to get on Twitter. And I am not on any social media previously. Mm. 
Um, and I have never, even though I've been overseas, I've never really done the whole Facebook thing a lot. You know, you do, but it's been almost a decade that I haven't really. And um, so I started on Twitter and immediately in the first, man, I think it was like the first week or two, I started connecting with a few people who ended up, we, this was the creation of crazy PLN. And um, we started off, you know, chit-chatting about we wanted to make a group and what this was. And this was all brand new to me. And I was like, what is happening? It was so confusing because I was like, <laughs> yeah. what's a PLN? Like, what, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. And for me, it was just, I found this like group of people that were really supportive and helping me navigate mm-hmm. what Twitter was because I had never used Twitter before and just what to do and what were the benefits and that kind of thing. And so as, as being part of that beginnings of the crazy PLN, it just started to grow around me. And I didn't realize it was happening because I was just kind of following this group of people that kind of took me under their wing and were like, Hey, what's up? Welcome. And I was like, yeah. okay, let's do it. <laughs> and so over the, over the course of the time, cause I, I didn't, I haven't always felt inspired and wanted something more. I had finished my master's degree and was, you know, kind of awake to this whole idea of science and what I was doing with science. And I didn't necessarily have enough people around me that I felt inspired by that I wanted to, that I was being inspired to do new things with. And, um, so the crazy PLN was doing that because, oh, look at what I've done. This is where I've gone for here. And this is what I've read. And this, and so just sharing all of that stuff was really inspiring. And then being able to share the stuff that I was doing and for people to say, wow, look at that. Like, how did you do that? And to have those really amazing discussions about yeah. things that were really getting us going as teachers. Mm-hmm. And so it really helped me when I maybe didn't feel that way get that way because then I'd see oh this person's done this really crazy project or what's you know what's AR I'm going to give that a try or what's VR mm-hmm. I'm going to give that a try here's an app I can use and right. it really was the best professional development I could have possibly asked for yeah. because it turned because you know you go to a meeting and you sit in there and you're going oh I just have to do this and I have to do that and you know that's all mm-hmm. you do when you're in those meetings or yeah it's we're not first year teachers. Don't talk to us like that. You know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, this was such a different uh, experience and it mm-hmm. really matched my research that I had done on like authentic learning and what that means and how you have to be really involved with it. And it was that in the making all the time. And not only was it about the education and the pedagogy and all that, it was really like love and support mm-hmm. for all the things in your life you know you'd go on and people would mm-hmm. talk about whatever was going on in their own personal lives and I've, I've been I've had phone calls I've made phone calls to people just that I've never actually spoken with in real life until the moment that they needed someone and we called each other you know mm-hmm. and it's you know it, it's nice to have that support when you need mm-hmm. it and you know, when I was changing jobs and I wasn't sure what I was going to do or what I thought about it mm-hmm. just going on there and saying I, I might I might be quitting my job. Like, mm-hmm. is this the right decision for me? You know, and that kind of stuff where it was really big life decisions that mm-hmm. I was able to talk to, you know, people who were supportive and who were outside of the situation, but still were, you know, wanting the best for me. So I think the crazy PLN has totally transformed my teaching in the last two years um, and really kept me at the 
top of my game because they're always at the top of theirs. I, I love the fact that you mention without saying it, the whole idea of valid validation, people valuing mm. you, um, people lifting you up, which mm. I know you do for other people also. And also what I've spoken about many times is this idea that even though you've never met face to face, you feel like you have, and you feel like you've known them for such a long time. So making these connections, you know, often we hear um, educators or people in other jobs that are sort of very um, proprietary about the things that they create and the things that they do. But I find that there's so much on Twitter um, with crazy PLN and with other PLNs that are so giving and supporting and you described it so beautifully. It, it's really am amazing how you've grown as a result of your growth on, on Twitter, which, which is really you know something that I hadn't noticed before because normally when I talk to uh, the, my other guests, many of them have been on Twitter longer but you've only been on for a couple of years and this has really been your journey. So mm -hmm. I know that you got, you, you uh, went back for a master's because mm -hmm. uh, like you alluded to in the beginning when you were talking about yourself, that you had originally taught, I think, English and French? I was a French immersion teacher. Yeah. French immersion teacher, yes. And, but now <laughs> you're teaching science and engineering so tell me about that transition and did that happen recently or did that happen before you, you uh, went back, went, went on Twitter? When I came overseas the second time, when I came to China, I was teaching at the same school as my wife and we were both um, kind of leaders in the school. She was in charge of one, two, and three and I was four, five, and six and she was mm -hmm. English. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. And so I started with science fairs and was like, science fair is not fun. I love projects. And so I started working on science fairs and that's kind of where it started. And mm -hmm. so the next school I was, I, I got the job out of pure enthusiasm and they made, <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> they made me the department head of science. And I was like, I actually don't have any education about this. I just like really into it. Oh, so wow. I uh, decided I should go back to school. So I did. Yeah. And then halfway through I switched schools and, um, I just kind of continued on this path of like mm -hmm. building science and bringing up the uh, profile of it because overseas, I mean, it's like English and math and that's what everybody's mm -hmm. really into. Mm -hmm. And I'm not as into those two uh, topics and I really love the projects. I really love getting, in, you know, getting my hands dirty. Mm -hmm. And so when I got my master's, I felt like my brain had been asleep for like 10 years Wow. I just, wow. I feel like my brain just stopped developing or something. And then I went back to school and I was, I mean, the, bless my wife, because every day she was like cooking meals and I was hours in, in my room, just like mm -hmm. trying to figure stuff out. And, you know, I was taking a astronomy course and every third word I didn't understand. So it would take me two hours to read a chapter. Oh, so it was gosh. just a lot. Mm -hmm. And it was really amazing because I went from yes season d's get degrees like not really caring about what i got in school to being you know i want 
every single perfect grade. I want to do everything perfectly <laughs> and contacting my teachers. How do I do this? Like, what do I do mm -hmm. here? I'm so sorry. I don't want to bother you. But I built amazing relationships with my teachers mm -hmm. at uh, Leslie University out of Boston. Mm -hmm. And um, they really inspired me. And that's how I started into engineering. And that's what I did my capstone on and all about teaching teachers to learn about engineering. And I always talk about how I was afraid of science and engineering before I started in, you know, in my early thirties and being able to kind of totally transform into this advocate for STEM learning, even though I'm always learning, um, right. you know, I think you can still be a, an advocate for it. So I started doing a lot of stuff with like coding, never did coding, but I started a girls coding club and I'd never done robotics, but I started a girls robotics club and I was learning alongside of them. But mm -hmm. I think it's really important to keep yourself going like that. So right. the, the change from that to science was, I mean, it started because I needed my own niche and then it just ended up being something that I really excelled at and now um, love. And, and it all started with an interest that you had, you know, looking for that opportunity and then saying, okay, I, you know, I'm open to learning and yeah. finding that passion, you know, it's, it's something that we, we hope to do with our students. So how, do, <laughs> yeah. So how do you, how do you use that in your classroom or, you know, in your environment when you're teaching other teachers, what are some mm -hmm. of the things that you point out to teachers to be aware of? Because science tends to be, I know it was for me, tends to be mm -hmm. one of those, oh, I don't know if I could do that. And then add the engineering part to it, which is, you know, a much higher level of creation and thinking of in the sciences. So how do, how do you manage to do that with students who may be a little bit more reluctant? Yeah, I, I use a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, um, anecdotal kind of stories. I talk about you know, being 16 and sitting in my classes and writing notes to my friends saying, I hate science. I'm never taking a science class ever again. Like I, you know, I talk about those things about how I wish I would have known all the great things mm -hmm. that there are in science and I'll yeah. do, you know, I'll, I'll bring things up in the news that the kids want to see, or I'll show them things that I'm working on. And just to kind of show them that the skills that I'm teaching them are useful. Um, even if it's mm -hmm. just highlighting in a textbook I'm showing them you know my research paper that I'm highlighting and here's all the things that you do you know so that's it's just about making it accessible and so for teachers I always just say just trust me just give it a try and even just recently I I had some teachers who did an engineering kind of a steam fair where the kids built arcade games out of cardboard and tape and things like that and the teachers that I that I was working with at the end said, you know, I didn't trust you at the beginning. I didn't think I could do it, but man, it was so great. It was amazing. And I was like, that's okay. Every single teacher says that to me at the beginning that they're just going to let me take them along with me. And then, you know, it, it gets them there because I think part of it is that when teachers are trying new things. They don't know where to start. So if right. you have an, you know, if you're inspired by something and you have a passion for something, you have to put the work in mm -hmm. to giving teachers everything they need. So if I'm doing science fairs, I'm giving details down to font charts as to how big the font should be for the titles mm -hmm. and the research so that teachers don't have to figure that stuff out. But then right. once they do it once, then the next year, I mean, it's an investment in time, but then mm -hmm. the next year it's, 
oh, I already know how to do that. I've done that before, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're really passionate about something, it doesn't matter what it is. If you can show your passion and you can give people all the tools they need and you're not asking them to do a whole heck of a lot more than just putting it forward, not creating resources, none of those other things, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. people will, will humor you. You know, usually if you've got a good relationship with people, you know, <laughs> I like that. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. uh, bring them along for the ride. And then at the end, you know, people are always really happy to see the, the product, uh, especially with engineering, because the, you never believe even still, even though I teach teachers about it, I still don't believe the kids are going to be able to do it. And then they every single time do it. So it's just, you have to get comfortable with this idea that you might not know the end of it. And that is such an uncomfortable mm -hmm. place to be. <laughs> it is, especially, especially as a teacher, as a student also, but as a student, you figure, well, my teacher will help me, right? Somebody's going to bring me along, whether or not yeah. you're going to do it. I also think it's hard to um, not be enthused by your enthusiasm. You mentioned earlier that you were hired for a job based on your enthusiasm. I can certainly <laughs> see why. And so, you know, because there's this passion and love that comes out in what you're describing. When teachers see that, I think it's very hard to resist because they said, well, if she can love it and you know she's gonna take me along, like you mentioned, then mm -hmm. there must be something to it. And so I'm just gonna take that leap of faith for right now. And if it doesn't turn out, that's okay. You know, I'll tell her it didn't turn yeah. out. But at that's least I'm, I'm, yeah, at least I'm willing to sort of jump into beginning. I think it's also really interesting that you talked you you talked a little bit earlier about the fact that PD you mentioned briefly that PD isn't quite maybe what it should be you know when we're sitting there and taking notes and so forth and so what you've done is turned that around and said I know how I learn and mm -hmm. I know what teachers enjoy when they're learning and then I'm here for you later on because I've given you resources, but I'm also here for any questions. And yeah. that's what a lot of times is missing from PD is, is we'll sit either at a conference or somewhere and then that will be the last of it, that connection to the person who presented to us. And mm -hmm. if we come to a point where, especially with something like science and engineering, which we're not really familiar with and not comfortable with, and we mm -hmm. get to the point where, oh gosh, where do I go next? Or it's not really working the way it was supposed, or the way they said it worked for them. And then it's like, you know, I don't have time to deal with this. So I'm just going to go back to what I was doing. Yeah. Just to, to continue with the engineering and the hands-on and all of that. I think engineering is hands-on, of course, by, by nature. And so I think it's crazy to teach teachers about something that they can't get hands-on with. And so I think it's really important that your professional development matches what you're trying to get people to do and it's got to engage you. And there's a lot of research out there about how teachers in like their thirties and forties really require like time to reflect and time to actually look at what they're looking at and say, okay, does that, how can that apply in my classroom? And they need time to discuss and they need time to really embed those ideas. And so I think professional development hasn't all quite caught up to this concept that it has to be I mean, it doesn't always have to be, but for, for me, I need to be able to get hands-on. I need to be able to talk about it. I need to be able to relate to other people's situations and stories. 
And so when I design professional development, I'm always looking at how can I get people involved? How can I get people building? And I, I did one with Beluga recently, just last year. And mm-hmm. I had people building in their homes and it was really fun to see wow. one of the participants had uh, their child building with them. And you know, he posted pictures of it online and it was just so awesome. My parents came and watched and they were building in their apartment or in their house. <laughs> it's just really cool to see that but you know you've got to try to do those kinds of things because I think if you don't it just you just become white noise and I you know I want to be memorable in some way shape or form and I want people to to take something away and if anything um it's it's about being able to get hands-on right and also being willing to be a bit vulnerable because I imagine you're not sure whether things will work out completely yeah, as as yeah, and so you you're sort of uh, as as the presenter or as the person the proponent of this idea is mm-hmm. sort of being vulnerable about that. How does that feel? Um, usually it's a little scary, but again, it's the same concept that I tell the teachers who are trying it with me. Sometimes it doesn't work, and that's totally mm-hmm. fine. And you know, as long as like as long as you know why those things didn't work and or the the basis of what you're trying to achieve because mm-hmm. I talk a lot about to my kids about how science is a lot about failure and if you aren't failing you're not doing it right because that is not the way science works people have mm-hmm. to fail to get to wherever they're going to get you know the rocket through the atmosphere you know I mean like these are things that has to happen you have to fail so you have to get very comfortable with failing so I'm really good at failing at stuff. And then I'm good at coming back to it, trying it again and, you know, and, and doing something successful with it. So mm-hmm. um, I think I've, I've become very comfortable with that idea. And so it makes it a little easier. And I'm okay with just laughing at myself and saying, oh, you know what? I don't really know why that didn't work, but that's okay. Right. And the failing and learning from, from that failure or those mistakes I, I think that's all also really important lesson. And they talk a lot about that now because, you know, we, we sort of have had a culture for the last 20 years or so of everybody needs to succeed. We're all succeeding. Let's just celebrate the successes and let's, let's not look at the failures. But we know from the science, from the research, that in order to be successful, we need to have the failures along the way because that's what teaches us a lot of the lessons and also helps us learn. So yeah, that's really awesome that you uh, make it known that you're fine with that, which mm-hmm. makes everybody else, including your students, fine with that. I'd also like to ask you, because I, I know that you're interested in the SDGs. It's something mm-hmm. that you've also moved into in terms of uh, using your science. And I think there's a project that you do with... Uh, about light poverty. And so I'd love for you to talk about how you moved into teaching using the SDGs and if you wanna talk about that project also. Sure, um, I started teaching with the SDGs. Um, it, it, to me, it seemed like a natural connection to science because mm-hmm. if you are using, um, cause I'm actually, I'm working on a project right now called STEAM with a Purpose. And it's all about using STEAM to solve mm-hmm. SDG issues. And so I'm trying to integrate that within uh, the curriculum. Nice. But um, I, 
when I started learning about the SDGs, I didn't realize I'd already been kind of working on them because I'd been working with this uh, charity called Solar Buddy for a little while and I'd written curriculum for them and they've really blown up uh, since then. And, um, you know, they, they're all over the world uh, giving lights to people who are suffering from energy poverty and, you know, re helping to reduce uh, kerosene, ex kerosene gas exposures and things mm -hmm. like that. And so um, that project, that project that I had been working on for a little while, a couple of years, I, I haven't worked with them for another for the last two years, just because COVID's kind of mm -hmm. for a loop for me. But that was kind of a natural next step was looking at the SDGs and exploring that. And so I started looking at to um, the teach SDGs. And so I'm an ambassador for them now. And uh, that's been really transformative because now I'm looking really to combine the two and really look, look into uh, developing that further. So I think the SDGs are so, so important. And if we're teaching kids about how they're, you know, global citizens and how we want them to be agents of change and all of these kind of buzzwords that we're looking at in education, I think using the SDGs and science and combining them to help kids see themselves as problem solvers for the future I think that's yeah. so important and it's really fun for teachers because we get to build amazing projects and see these kids thinking really deeply about huge world issues and trying to solve them so I think that's mm -hmm. really uh, crucial for the future and yeah. that doesn't have to start when we're in high school I argue that it needs to start right away Oh, yes. Even young, young students uh, can learn about the rest of the world with the world, right? I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. So this has been so nice. I'm so glad that we finally connected. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or any other advice that you want to give uh, teachers or li our listeners? I think the most important thing is to just give it a try because so many teachers are, we're very prideful people. We're, you know, we always want to be confident and good at what we do. And because it's so important, the job that we're doing that, you know, messing up maybe doesn't seem like an option. Whereas I think if people are willing to learn something new and to just try something they've never tried before, it's amazing because I did and it has totally transformed my teaching and transformed what I do and the way I think about things and it's an ongoing journey and I think if I hadn't taken that first step and said I'm gonna try something different then I wouldn't be where I am today so I just think that's really really important to take a risk right yeah and take a risk and look for those opportunities and you're a perfect example of a lifelong learner because as soon as you see the opportunity, it's not like, well, I'm doing that. I'm doing so much already. I think I'll just put that to the side. It's like, but that really fits in nicely with what I'm already doing. So let me just try it. And then once yeah. I try it, maybe I can see if other one, others want to try it. So that's, that's just um, amazing. And I can see why you call it, this is awesome, Ed, because you're so awesome, <laughs> Tia. <laughs> Thank you yeah, sure. So for those who want to hop off uh, listening to the podcast and they want to find you right away, uh, where is the best or where are the best places to find you? And of course, I'll include that all in the show notes. Sure. Um, I guess the best and only place to find me is actually on Twitter. And I am This Is Awesome Ed. 
uh, formerly Tia Science. So yeah, this is awesome Ed on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And then you have your website, right? Oh yeah, I should probably say that, shouldn't I? Um, yeah, my, my you should, um, <laughs> and <yeah>. you will. <laughs> yeah, definitely check out my website. Um, this is actually the first time I've talked about it like out loud because it's all mm -hmm. just online. Um, but yeah, my website is thisisawesomeed.com. There mm -hmm. are lots of really great resources that you can instead of going onto Google and trying to mm -hmm. wade through everything, you can go on, look under SDGs, and find really amazing resources and projects. Um, you can find news articles and then you can go to diversity and find stuff on teaching about LGBTQ issues or mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter or other things like that. And then within um, the STEAM stuff, there's you know links for great um, uh, apps that I've tried or mm -hmm. websites that will help you to teach engineering or things like that. So, you know, I, I feel like it's kind of a one-stop shop for those three topics. And if anybody has any great websites that they want to add on to the, to the site, please let me know. You can subscribe and get updates. So yeah, come and check it out. Terrific. Wow. That sounds really awesome, Ed. Thank you so much, Tia, for being on my podcast today. Uh, I really, really enjoyed learning more about you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're inspired by what you heard, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about belonging, check my website, Journeys to Belonging, that's Journeys number two belonging, dot webstarts.com. See you next week.